Well, the election is finally over. Can I get an amen? Man, amen. Amen. Let us remember that it is only the beginning of much work needed to be done. Yet let us not depend on politics or reforms to bring about the real transformation America truly needs. Amen? When the church shines as lights in this dark world, then the light of Christ will bring the true hope and change America truly needs. When our country collectively as a whole repents of their sins and turns to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's when we will see something we've never seen before. We will see revival. But let, us, let me remind us that revival always begins in the church with believers in the hearts of God's people. Amen. But before we dive into our verses this morning, I do want to share just a few points about our blessings we share living in a free society like the United States. Number one, let us remember that we are so blessed. We are blessed to live in a nation that allows us the freedom to worship God without persecution. I mean, we were able to come together as believers like this and magnify and glorify God as a community. That is amazing. That's such a blessing. It's something that we should cheer, that we should be celebrating. Number two, our system of government is unlike any other system in history. As we will have a transfer of power from present president to the new elected president early next year. And this will be done without war, without bloodshed, without a rebellion. It will be a peaceful transfer of extraordinary power from one group to another. That is truly remarkable as we recognize that man in general is usually driven by pride, driven by power, driven by prestige. Yet willingly, the present leaders will give up this tremendous, this great amount of power willingly to the next elected officials. Number three, let us remember Romans 13.1 that says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we are called to submit, to obey the governing authorities as believers, regardless of whoever is in office, because it's not so much because they're good, or that they're going to follow what we want or what we like. But we submit to our leaders because God is the one who sovereignly has placed them in power. So we submit to them willingly. Number four, let us pray. Let us get on our knees and pray. Let us pray diligently for our government, for those who have been elected into power. I mean, what a monumental task that is ahead of anybody who is trying to govern our nation. So may we pray that President Trump, along with his team, will be led by the Spirit of God, that they worship the one true God, 
that they be faithful to the only God and that they may give glory to God and God alone. Amen? So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. Father, we thank you that we live in a free nation where we can worship you freely. Come together and lift up your name in song. Lift up your name in our marriages. Lift up your name in the coffee shops. Lift up your name at our workplaces, Father. Freely. Thank you for that. Father, we ask that you allow us to continue to have such a right, to have such freedom. Thank you for what you've done for us, Father, as believers. Help us not to take it for granted. We ask now, Father, you be with us as we open your word and dive into your scriptures, Father. Help us to dive deep this morning and be challenged, be encouraged, be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ we pray, amen. Well, as we think about the election, it was one crazy ride, right? Many of us wanted to get off a long time ago, right? But what was ironic about it all is that the fact that almost every talking head, every expert, every poll showed Trump getting demolished, getting destroyed, right? It was as if many people in the media were expecting Trump to surrender, to drop out before any votes were even cast. And then the country voted. And to the horror of many, right? But to the happiness and glee of many others, Donald J. Trump will be our 45th president of the United States of America. The irony of the election is sweetness to many, while it is a bitter pill to swallow for many others. But irony isn't just found in politics, but it is in all of our lives as well. For example, I love basketball. And when I was younger, I loved playing basketball. And that might seem a little ironic considering my size, right? This may surprise some of you. It may surprise many of you. Many of you probably assumed I was a lot taller in my earlier years. But it's really not the case. It's not true. I've never been as tall as Pastor Casey. I've always been known as a little guy. Nicknames? can give you an idea of what people thought of me on the basketball court. As I wanted to be called maybe someone like one of my heroes like Michael Jordan or maybe some type of superhero, maybe Superman or something, that would have been nice. But instead, my nickname on the basketball court was Mighty Mouse. <laughs> mighty Mouse. Yes, Mighty Mouse. A mighty little mouse. Some might say that's ironic to call a mouse mighty, right? But nonetheless, I was small. But I will tell you this, I could dunk as long as the rim was lowered down to six foot. <laughs> so irony can be pointed out in any of our lies, but Scripture is also filled with irony and paradoxes. As we see, to live, we must first what? Die, right? To be something, you first have to be nothing, right? To be first, you first must become last. If you want to be mature in your faith, you have to have faith like a child, right? 
We first must be poor spiritually before we can become healthy spiritually. And those that think they are healthy spiritually are the ones who are sick. And in our verses this morning, I want us to look at the irony found in our passages. So let us open our Bibles to John 19, starting at verse 17. John 19, starting at verse 17. God's holy, inerrant, infallible word says this. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So Jesus was taken to be crucified at the place which was called the place of the skull. We aren't exactly sure why they called it this, but we see that Jesus was crucified along with two other men, two other criminals. The question is, how did we get to this point? How did Christ become a criminal that was finally crucified? I mean, Christ was perfect. He was God in the flesh. His love was flawless. His love was selfless. And yet Christ ended up on the cross. That in and of itself is ironic. The creation killing the creator. But we also find out that Christ had some serious haters as well. He had some real enemies. I mean, these guys hated him so much that they daydreamed about how they could get him killed. I mean, that seems a little crazy, right? Can you imagine thinking about someone you don't like to the point that you meditate on how you can get them thrown in prison or how you can get them the death penalty? So these people that hated Christ had some serious issues, right? But let me add, these daydreamers of death were also the pastors of their day. They were the theologians of Israel. They were considered the spiritual guides to the blind. They were known as the Pharisees and the chief priests. These were the supposed experts of the Bible. But I must say, they they did know a lot. I mean, they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And to think about that, Genesis alone has 50 chapters in it. I think that's a good idea. I think that's a good test for us at the family church. We as pastors should at least be able to memorize the first book of the Bible, right? So I think what we'll do is next week when Pastor Casey preaches, we can start that challenge. (laughs) But I'm just kidding. But this shows how serious, right? How diligent, how intense the Pharisees were. They knew God's word inside and out. And they knew the Old Testament spoke of a future Messiah. So they were watching. They were looking for this Messiah. They were anticipating the coming of Christ. And what happened when he came? How did the religious leaders respond? Were they joyful? Were they excited? Did they praise God? Were they thankful? 
that there was finally someone that would save them from their sins? The Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious leaders, were they excited? Well, this leads to irony number one. The experts of God's word wanted to kill the Messiah. The experts of God's word wanted to kill the Messiah. And last week, Casey eloquently described how the Pharisees made this happen. How they brought the crucifixion of Christ to fruition. We saw how the Pharisees couldn't kill Christ themselves as they lived under Roman rule. So they had to get Rome to put Christ to death. So they went to the Pilate, who was the prefect or the governor of that area, by saying that Jesus called himself a king, which was a serious offense in Rome. And as the Pharisees put the pressure on Pilate, he finally caved and gave the okay to crucify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the glaring question is why? Why would the Pharisees, the religious leaders who knew God's word, want to kill Christ, who was the Messiah? Why would they want this? I mean, again, they were looking for the Jewish Messiah. They were eagerly awaiting him. And then, when Christ comes, they totally reject him. Well, we know that they expected someone different. They didn't recognize Christ being the Messiah. Although Christ fulfilled over 300 Old Testament passages that a lot of them they had memorized, which again, they studied the Old Testament diligently, and yet they didn't see Christ. But this leads to another question, why? Why didn't they recognize Christ? Why didn't they see Christ in all of the hours of their study of God's word? Well, thankfully, God's word tells us. Let me read John 8, 42 through 44 to us. Jesus said to them, which are the Pharisees and chief priests, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus says the reason why they didn't recognize Christ as Messiah is because they didn't love God. They didn't know God, he says, right? But the reason why they didn't love God is because it says they were children of Satan. I mean, how ironic. Let's wrap our minds around this one. The Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, who were deemed the experts of God's word, considered the spiritual guides, the pastors of the day, and yet they didn't love God. They didn't know God because they were children of Satan. The Pharisees weren't interested in a Messiah, in a Savior that was going to forgive them of their sins. They weren't interested in a Messiah that was going to humble them. And they sure weren't interested in a Messiah they had to worship. 
The Pharisees wanted a Messiah who was going to give them their heart's desires. They wanted a Messiah who would give them more power, a Messiah who would give them more honor, a Messiah who would serve their own prideful and selfish desires. That's the sort of Messiah they wanted. I wonder what kind of Messiah we want this morning. Do we want to follow Christ, live for Christ? Or are we like the Pharisees who wanted a Messiah of their own making? Well, Matthew 23, 25, and 26, it's known as the woe chapter. Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. So Jesus says the Pharisees, the religious leaders, look so spiritual, They look so godly. They look so righteous on the outside. But inwardly, below the surface, they are self-centered, greedy, and self-righteous. I wonder if we can relate to the Pharisees. If we would say we love Christ, we serve Christ, but in reality, we are only serving and focusing on ourselves. But part of the problem with the Pharisees was the fact that they didn't really know who they truly were. They didn't realize they were full of selfishness. They didn't realize they were full of greed. They assumed they actually were children of God, living for God. I mean, they were the leaders. They were the authorities of God's word. They didn't understand their own hearts That's why Jeremiah 17, 9, a very familiar passage says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah says, the heart deceives. It caused the Pharisees to assume they were good when in reality they were wicked. The heart caused them to think they were selfless when in reality they were selfish. That's the scary thing about our hearts. The first person our hearts deceive is ourselves. That's why we don't listen to our hearts. That's why we don't follow our hearts. But we follow God's inerrant, infallible word. But one way we can start to gauge our own hearts is by looking at our thought life. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, that out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Jesus says the first thing sinful that comes out of our hearts are evil thoughts. That's the first thing. But the question is, what is evil thoughts? What are evil thoughts? For the Pharisees, it was thinking too high And too much of themselves. It was thinking, how can I get more power? How can I get more honor? How can people respect us more as the religious leaders of the day? And these thoughts were all centered around, guess who? The Pharisees. Not around God. And you may be wondering, how do I know the thoughts of the Pharisees? Was I living back then? 
Well, we read Matthew 23, 25 again, where the woe chapter where Jesus just told us that they were full of greed and self-indulgence. So Jesus said that greed and self-indulgence dominated them. So what they did was an outflow, a feeding of and their evil thoughts. And these evil thoughts started from their evil heart. So we can't change often our hearts, right? We can't do anything about our hearts. But one thing we can do is begin to control our thought life. The question is, how do we do that? How do we control our thoughts? Well, 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us, Paul says this, he says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says we are called to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Literally, submit it to Christ. In other words, Christ should infiltrate our thoughts Christ should be at the center of our thinking. It's sort of like Christ invades every thought that we have. That means my thoughts are measured. My thoughts are inspected. My thoughts are scrutinized by God's word. And if a thought is sinful, if it is wicked, we are called to change our thinking. Stop dwelling on thoughts that don't glorify God. So the question is, are we taking our, light, our thought life captive this morning? Are we glorifying God with our thought life? Or are we letting our thoughts run wild as if we have no control over them? Another question, thinking back on the Pharisees. Do we blame the Pharisees as the sole culprits for the death of Christ? I mean, they were the ones who manipulated and schemed to get Christ killed in the first place, right? But Scripture shows us that there was someone else motivated to kill Christ as well. And this entity was more sly, more devious, more wicked than even the Pharisees. We could call him the leader of the Pharisees. We get a hint that they were related a few verses back. And we get a hint of his involvement in the upper room before the Lord was captured in the garden. This is back in John 13, 21 and 28, when they were in the upper room. And Jesus was talking with the disciples, and he says this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked around at one another, uncertain of who he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table of, on Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he gave the dip morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. 
Scripture says that Satan entered Judas, and Judas instantly leaves to get the group of people that would capture Christ and ultimately kill him. So it looks like Satan is to blame for the death of Christ. It looks like his evil plan prevailed as Jesus was innocently murdered. It looks like this. It looks like Satan outsmarted God. But we know that wasn't the case because the death of Christ ironically destroyed the rule and reign of Satan, right? We see Satan dethroned in John 12, 31 through 33, where Jesus says this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says that the ruler of this world, which was Satan, was defeated on the cross. He lost his power, his control, when Christ died and rose again. Which leads to irony number two. God the Father planned the crucifixion of God the Son. God the Father planned the crucifixion of God the Son. Let me say it is true. The Pharisees were guilty of the death of Christ. And it is also right to say that Satan was guilty of the death of Christ also. But ultimately, they were being used by God. Satan thought he won. He thought he outsmarted God. But in reality, he was a mere puppet. He was a mere instrument in God's hands. Acts 2.23 says this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see here that God ordained the death of Christ, or as Acts tells us, it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This gives us a glimpse of how God's sovereignty works with man's will. But it also shows us something else. It shows us what great lengths God went to to save his people. But the question is why? Why did God create such an elaborate plan to save his children? I mean, what motivated God the Father to send his son to die for us? Well, John 3.16, in a passage we all know, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says it's love. It's love. It's love. Love is why God sent Christ to the cross. Love is why Christ submitted to the Father's will. Love is why any of us this morning are children of God. Amen? The God of the universe loves us. That means his perfect, pure, eternal love has been poured out. And and it continues to be poured out on us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. We need to just let this sink into our minds. We need to just sit and soak in the fact that God was motivated from a heart of love to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us. I wonder if our Christian walk this morning 
is saturated in the love of God. If we have turned to Christ in repentance and faith and been drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we know we have the love of Christ living in us. Are we as believers reveling in that love of God? Are we reveling in the grace of God, knowing that his grace was given to us because of his great love for us? It works together. But let's go back to our main text. John 19, and now we're in verses 19 through 22. I'll give you a minute to get back there. John 19, 19 through 22 says this. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So Pilate writes an inscription over the cross that says, Jesus is king of the Jews, right? And he writes this not only in Greek, but also in Aramaic and Latin as well. So everyone who went by the cross could read the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And this, of course, infuriates the chief priests and Pharisees. And they ask Pilate to change it. Don't write Jesus, king of the Jews, but that this man said he was king of the Jews. Pilate responds, what I have written, I have written. And to say it another way, I'm not changing what I already wrote. It's probably safe to say, Pilate didn't write this because he actually thought Jesus was a king. But because he hated the Pharisees and high priests so much, and it was just a way of getting back at them, getting a little dig at them, jabbing at them a little bit. But let me say this, that Pilate deciding to leave this inscription over Jesus was ironic because it was much bigger than trying to annoy the Pharisees and high priests. And this leads to irony number three. Jesus was and is king over all. Let me say that again. Jesus was and is king over all. Pilate writing Jesus, king of the Jews in Greek and in Aramaic and in Latin, which were the major languages known in that world, symbolized that Jesus wasn't just king of the Jews, but king over everyone. We get a glimpse of Jesus being king over all in John 1, 29, which says this. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? I mean, this would have been odd for John the Baptist to, to, to say, to take away the sins of the world. It would have been expected to say, take away the sins of Israel, right? Because again, they believe the Messiah was just for the Jewish people, not for the whole world. But I must say, church, the fact that we are here this morning proclaiming Christ as Lord, but not just us, but all over, our brothers and sisters across the world are lifting up Christ, proves that Christ is king over all, amen? 
I mean, think about this for a second. Right now, we are on this little island called Marco Island, which maybe, in my opinion, I might be a little biased, but I think it's comparable to the Garden of Eden. But nonetheless, we are all here to worship, to praise, to honor, to adore Christ. I mean, how amazing is that? Our Lord's rule spans all places, all cultures, all times. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is eternal. Christ is ruler over the universe. Christ is the great I am. Christ is the almighty God. Christ is Lord of all. But let's look back at one last irony this morning, which this one is sort of an added bonus. It's not really connected to our main verses, but I loved it so much I had to put it in there. So this is irony number four. Happy are the sad. Irony number four says, happy are the sad. In the Christian life, without sadness, we will never find happiness. Without being severely upset, we won't find true peace. Without being broken, we can't be fixed. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are those who mourn is another way to say it. The question is, what are they mourning over? What is this mourning they're having? When we look to the cross, when we look to Christ, we are joyful, we are thankful for what Christ has done for us, right? But the cross also reminds us of our sinfulness, of the reality that our present sin caused Christ to go to the cross for us in the first place. So we weep. We wail. We are broken over our sin knowing it costed our Lord and Savior his life. That's why James 4.9 tells us, he says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. How encouraging, right? But we got to remember, James was a letter circulated to all the churches surrounding Asia Minor. It was to Christians when he says this. James calls us to recognize our sin by telling us to purify our hearts, which means confess and repent of our sin. And then he goes on and says, mourn and weep. Stop laughing and deal with the disease known as sin that continues to cause problems in your life. It continues to cause you to rebel against your Lord. But I must say, church, it's so natural for us to avoid sin. We want to have a good time, right? We want to keep things surface level. We don't want to face ourselves, often deal with what is below the surface. We want to deal with sin. It causes so many problems. It's such a pain, right? I wonder if we're sad this morning over our sinfulness. If we are heartbroken over the fact that our sin caused Christ to be crucified on the cross. 
When is the last time we mourned over our loose tongues? When is the last time we grieved over the lack of self-control we have in the present moment? When is the last time we wailed over our stubborn pride? When is the last time we mourned over our lack of love for God and others? When is the last time we grieved over the lack of prayer time we give to God? When is the last time we mourned over the lack of time spent in God's word? Well, thankfully, James does not just leave us in our sinful, miserable state where we would be really depressed if I ended right now, right? But he tells us what happens when we turn to Christ. James 4.10, there's another verse. And he concludes by saying this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he, that is God, will exalt you. When we face our sin, when we humble ourselves, it will be God who lifts us up. We don't have to lift ourselves up. Our sadness will turn into gladness, and it won't be something we have to do to ourselves. But it is God who gives us inner joy. It is God who gives us an inner peace. It is God who gives us an inner contentment. It is God who transforms our heart by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Church, I must admit, our sin is great, but our Savior is greater. Amen? So let us dwell on the radical love of our Savior this morning, recognizing he sits on the throne, ruling all the nations. And let us also sit soberly for a moment and realize the radical rebellion of our own hearts and turn to the one who continues to pour out his love and his grace on us. May he receive all glory, all honor, all praise, all power. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your graciousness, Father. As we see the irony, the vein of irony that, that just goes through all of Scripture, of how we think one thing, but it really means something totally, something else, Father. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and see really what your word tells us. Help us to be people who live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that are repentant, that are repenting of sin, that are just in awe of your grace that you continue to shower upon us that we don't deserve, but you continue to give it to us anyway. Help us to be a spirit-filled people that love you. In Christ's name, amen.